Good morning and happy Resurrection Sunday. Today is the Sunday that all other Sundays are about. The reason we gather on the first day of every week, even if we're gathering virtually for the time being, is because Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. This is certainly an unusual Easter. Lots of things are different, but I wanted to remind us at the very beginning this morning that some things are still the same. Jesus is still alive. He is still seated on his throne. He is ruling his church through his word by his spirit. And we have the privilege of hearing from him together today. So however you're watching or listening, I'm thankful you're here wherever it is that you are. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 2, the gospel according to John chapter 2. The past two Sundays, we've considered the death of Jesus on Good Friday and the Sabbath rest of Jesus on Holy Saturday. And this morning, of course, we're going to focus on His victorious resurrection on Sunday. But we're going to move forward in the story by way of first going back. We're going to look at something that happened earlier in Jesus' ministry. So look with me at John chapter 2, verse 13. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now pause there for a moment. You may recall that Jesus died uh, around the time of the Passover. But Passover was an annual celebration. It was something that happened every year. And this event in John 2 uh, was not the same Passover as the one when Jesus was crucified. This was a few years before that. But something happens here in John 2 that was so crucial, so important, that it only made sense after Jesus was raised from the dead. So let's read together and see what that was together. We're going to begin in John 2, verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pause there and pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken in your word. And Lord, like your followers, we look back to what you have said. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord Jesus, how you fulfill all that was written. That we would see the glorious truth of who you are for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. For a long time, people have been denouncing the commercialization of holidays like Christmas and Easter. I'm not wading into that cultural debate this morning. I simply wanted to point out that Jesus was obviously perturbed by what he saw as the commercialization of Passover. This was apparently the first Passover that took place after Jesus began his public ministry. And when he arrives at the temple in Jerusalem, he finds that the sound of worship has been replaced with the noise of commerce. Rather than prayers, he hears the lowing of oxen and the bleeding of sheep and the fluttering of pigeons that were being sold. Rather than songs of praise, he hears the jingling of money being exchanged. There was a discrepancy between what the temple ought to be and what it had become, how it had been perverted. Now, on the surface, these vendors in the temple appeared to be providing a helpful religious service. Try to place yourself in the shoes of, of someone who is traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. Once you get to the city, you would offer sacrifices. And I think we can all imagine that it was certainly far more convenient to, to purchase animals for sacrifice once you arrived in the city rather than having to transport them all the way from wherever you came. And when you traveled to Jerusalem for a big festival like Passover, you would, you would pay a tax that had to be paid in a particular kind of coin because of its purity. So these money changers in the temple were converting currency into the appropriate form. But of course, Jesus sees past the surface. He sees that these vendors were not just providing a valuable religious service, they were turning a profit. This system that may have been designed to help people worship God, they were using it to line their pockets. And the discrepancy between what the temple ought to be and what it had become causes a violent reaction in Jesus. I bet this has probably happened to you at some point or another. You pick up a glass of what you think is sweet tea, and you put it to your lips and you find out to your horror and disgust that it, it is in fact unsweet tea, or, or vice versa. You may be thinking it's unsweet and it's sweet. It's, it's jarring, isn't it? Because there's a discrepancy between what you expected it to be and what it turned out to be. Jesus, of course, was not surprised when he found the temple in this state. He wasn't shocked. It didn't catch him off guard. But he was perturbed nonetheless. Verse 15, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. The response to his outburst reveals to us what Jesus could see all along. Look down at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? I want you to imagine for a moment that you get pulled over for speeding. I'm sure that would not happen to, to any of you who are listening to this. But let's just say hypothetically you get pulled over for speeding and the police officer says to you, after you've rolled your window down, do you know how fast you were just driving? Now imagine if your response was, by what authority are you doing this? Who are you to pull me over and question me in this way? The police officer could answer that question a couple of different ways. He could say, I have authority 
because I have been deputized by whatever municipality he or she is working for. Or the officer could say to you, you did not answer the question. I asked you, do you know how fast you were just driving? And you have yet to answer the question. When these people respond to Jesus' outburst by saying, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Their question is a smokescreen. They're not actually interested in Jesus' authority at all. They're just interested in the fact that he's questioning their authority. It's a deflection. It's like the Wizard of Oz saying, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. They're not answering Jesus' objections. They're simply trying to cast the spotlight away from their activity and onto Jesus' authority. But Jesus still gives them an answer nonetheless. And this is what's crucial for us to see this morning. Even though their question may have been born out of sinful intent, the answer proves to be incredibly crucial for us today on Resurrection Sunday. Look with me at verse 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's his response. They've asked him for a sign to show his authority. And his answer is, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. When I was in seminary, my mentor, Al Jackson, whom we all just call Brother Al, he used to talk about how, how long it had been since he had last eaten ice cream. Uh, I don't know why you would brag about uh, depriving yourself of something so delicious as ice cream for such a long time, but he did, and he I don't remember exactly when it was the last time he ate ice cream, but I guarantee you if we caught him up right now, he could tell us the day and the year. It was a long time ago. So one day, Brother Al walks into our classroom, and he's drinking a milkshake. And I kind of you know, did a double take, and I said, Hey, Brother Al, when did you start eating ice cream again? And he sort of stopped and looked at me as if I was you know, the one with an octopus on my head. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you're drinking a milkshake. He goes, well, what does that have to do with ice cream? I said, well, you, you do know that ice cream is, is in milkshakes. It's kind of one of the key ingredients. And this was his response. I kid you not, he, he, didn't, he didn't take a second to think about it. He just immediately said, Matt, do you eat green beans? Uh, yes, sir, I do. Do you eat baby food green beans? No, sir. That's because they're not the same thing. And he turned and walked away, and that was the end of the conversation. That was it. And I just sat there and scratched my head at this man who speaks in riddles. I tell you that story to point out that no one who was present in the temple when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, no one who was there understood what he meant no one knew what he was talking about, at least they didn't get it at the time. The religious leaders totally missed it. Notice verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? So they, they totally miss it. But apparently they were not the only ones who didn't grasp what Jesus meant. His own disciples didn't get it either. In verses 21 and 22, John does something that he's kind of fond of doing in his account of the gospel. He stops telling the story, and he steps back as a God-inspired commentator, 
and he tells us what Jesus meant, what was going on. Look at verse 21. This is so important. John says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It was only in retrospect, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, that his disciples could look back on what he said on this Passover in the temple, and they could say, ah, now, now I see what he meant. Now I understand what he meant when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, they didn't just suddenly get that on their own. Later in John 14, 26, Jesus promised his disciples that the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So it is by the help of the Spirit that John remembers what Jesus said in the temple on this Passover. It is by the help of the Spirit that John now interprets that for us. And it is by the help of the Spirit that we now hear with our own ears. There are some things that only make sense on this side of the resurrection, and praise God, that's the side we live on. So there's a question that I want us to ponder today by the help of the Spirit. The question is this, why does Jesus phrase his response this way? Why does he answer their question in this particular way? They've just asked him for a sign to demonstrate that he has authority to act this way in the temple. Let's just, let's just play a hypothetical here for a moment. Could Jesus have said, the sign that I give to you is that I am going to die and on the third day I'll be raised again? Hypothetically, sure, Jesus could have said that. And that's essentially what he meant. That would have probably been the more straightforward way of saying what he meant. But that's not what he says. Why does he say, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up? Now, I don't pretend to fully be able to explain why Jesus said it this way. But surely one reason for why he said it this way is because Jesus is wanting to draw a connection between the temple and himself. He's wanting to take our idea of who he is and our understanding of what the temple was and put those together and say, if you understand what the temple was, what purpose it served, then you will understand something of what I am for you. Jesus was not only claiming to have authority to cleanse the temple, to act in the temple in this way. He was, he was claiming to have authority to replace the temple. It's as if he was saying, this building that you place so much value on, this place that you think is so holy, 
All of this was always a temporary placeholder until I came. What Jesus is saying here is incredibly arrogant unless he's right, unless he is God in human flesh. Jesus is saying, I am the new and better temple. Now, I worry that what Jesus said in the temple does not arrest our attention and our imagination the same way it would have for those who heard him when he first said it. We're so used to saying that the church is not a building, but for hundreds of years, this structure on a hill in Jerusalem, this building called the temple, it is how God's people experienced his presence. So the temple was incredibly important. The building was incredibly important. I want us to step back and think about how important and how crucial the temple was to God's people. Because when we see that, it's going to help us hear what Jesus is saying that he is for us. There are lots of things we could say about the temple. But I want us to zero in on two truths today. Two truths about what the temple was and what that then means that Jesus is for us. First, because Jesus is the true temple, He is the meeting place between God and men. Because Jesus is the true temple, He is the meeting place between God and men. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. The temple was where God's covenant presence resided among his people. Now you might say, man, I thought God's present everywhere. He is. But there is this understanding all throughout the Old Testament that while God's presence is everywhere and while there is nowhere we can go to escape his presence, he demonstrated and showed his covenant presence at one place. First at the tabernacle and then later at the temple. By claiming to be the true and better temple, Jesus is showing us that he is where God's holy presence resides. Jesus is where God and men are able to meet together. Paul says in Colossians 2:19, "In him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell." So the presence of God is not found in a singular holy place. It is found in a holy person, and his name is Jesus. To put it another way, if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to fellowship with God, it's not about going to a certain place, it's about coming to a certain person. In Jesus, God's holy presence was walking around on human legs. In Jesus, the kingdom of heaven had arrived because the king of heaven was there. So the first truth that we can see about the temple and what that means for who Jesus is for us is that because Jesus is the true temple, he is the meeting place between God and men. The second truth that I want us to zero in on today is that because Jesus is the true temple, 
He is the one through whom atonement is made. Because Jesus is the true temple, He is the one through whom atonement is made. The temple is the place where lambs were slain to make atonement for the sins of God's people. It's good news that God would want to dwell with His people, right? It's good news that God would want to be among His people, not just to be distant, but to be near them. But there's a problem with that. The problem is that God is perfectly holy, and His people are thoroughly sinful. And when God's holy presence collides with sin, it can be terrifying. That's why God made provisions for atonement to be made. It's why He gave instructions for for priests to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people so that their sins could be covered and so that God's wrath could be removed. The temple was where that took place. The temple was where God and sinners could be reconciled by means of a blood sacrifice. It wasn't just the meeting place between God and sinners. It was the place where God and sinners could meet and sinners not be consumed by the holiness of God because a substitute died in their place. And Jesus himself became that substitute. He became the definitive once for all sacrifice. He would lay down his own life and be raised up again. So everything about the temple... The presence of God, the, the priests, the, the sacrifice, all of that was wrapped up and fulfilled in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all of those things. He is the great high priest. He is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And He is the true and better temple. In Jesus, we have a meeting place with God that lives forever. See, one of the problems with the temple is that it could be destroyed. And in fact, about 40 years after Jesus stood in the temple and said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, the building itself was destroyed. It doesn't stand anymore. But in Jesus, we have a meeting place with God that lives forever, that is imperishable. It cannot be destroyed. We have a temple that has already gone through death and has been raised back up and cannot be destroyed again. In Jesus, we have a meeting place with God that is accessible to us no matter where we are. Isn't that a comfort in times like this? Because Jesus died and rose again, because He poured out His Spirit on His church, He can be present with His people, whether they are gathered or whether they are dispersed. We should long for the day when we can be gathered again. But we also can be thankful today that the presence of God in the church, it's not about a building. It's about a people. A people who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. A people who have been filled with the presence of the Spirit of God. A people who listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd a people who take up their cross and follow our Savior, a people who live for the mission of our King. 
The veil of the temple has been torn because Jesus is our temple. The Spirit of God has gone forth into every corner of the earth. The church of Jesus may be scattered, but we are still His people called by His name. So my prayer for you on this Resurrection Sunday is that you will find Jesus to be the all-satisfying Savior. If you want to be reconciled with God, there is only one place you can go, and it's not really about going to a place. It's about coming to a person. His name is Jesus. And He has done all that is necessary for you to come to Him. He is the one who says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the one who says, I am the true and better temple who is laid low in death but raised up in life. He is the one who says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's the one who says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. He's the one who says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He's the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's the one who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the one who says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He's the one who says, fear not. I am the first and I am the last. I lived, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Death could not stop him, friends. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The enemy has been defeated. Jesus is exalted. He is seated at God's right hand. Every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Every broken thing in this world will be made new. Every promise will be kept. You can trust him. He is worthy. He is victorious. And he is coming again. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the living one. Lord, that you died and that you conquered death and you are alive forevermore. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have spoken to your people through your word and that you have made it very clear to us that if we would be right with God, we must come to you. And so, Lord, I pray for every person right now who is, is hearing my voice, God, that they would set aside any efforts to, to make themselves right with you and that they would look to the cross and hear your voice say, it is finished and that they would look beyond the cross to the empty tomb, and that they would see that it is God's amen to Jesus, it is finished. Lord, that you have verified and guaranteed that Jesus is the only way for us to be right with you. He is the judge of the living and the dead. God, help us to humble ourselves before you. 
And God, help us to have thankful hearts today that you are no longer dead, but you're alive forevermore. God, open our eyes to that wonderful truth that we would walk in it, that we would treasure it and treasure you. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Before I leave you today, I want to speak a word of blessing to you on this Resurrection Sunday. May God be your exceeding joy, Christ your only hope, the Holy Spirit your unfailing comforter in all your worship, in all your work, in all your troubles until Jesus comes. Amen and amen.